Okay, so with that, we will go on to uh, our first speaker. It's my pleasure, actually, to uh, introduce um, Dr. Um, Peter Chen Hong, who uh, finished his training in infectious diseases, internal medicine at UCSF, and is now a professor of medicine and infectious diseases um, in, at, at UCSF. And um, he um, has become really a national expert on a, an issue that we've included, I think, for maybe the first time in this course. But for, as someone who retired who has more, too much time channel surfing on TV, the number of ads I see for immunobiologics and immunomodulators um, is, out, is just, I would say, outstanding because it is scary uh, to me. And I, and I know for a fact, through some other responsibilities that I have, that the, the pharmacy phar uh, of immunomodulators and immunobiologics is the fastest growing and becoming clearly the most expensive class of specialty drugs in the United States, outstripping you know, all other categories um, as the FDA approves new drugs, but importantly, expanding indications for drugs that have been around for, I mean, models have been around biologics for quite a while. This is something that affects all of us, not only those of us who are treating HIV, but those of us who um, see other patients or have colleagues who are using these immunomodulators. And again, part of the responsibility that I feel is that we have a responsibility to make sure that our colleagues who might be using this um, also understand the potential uh, ramifications, side effects um, in our population as well. So I think this is an incredibly timely talk, and it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Uh, Peter Chin Hong. Thanks a lot, Steve. Hope everyone is doing well. It's great fun to be here. I hope everybody enjoy their green eggs. I certainly did. I wasn't going to have any eggs, but then I saw they were green, and I couldn't help myself. And after Annie took, um, encouraged me to. Anyway, it's a great pleasure to come and talk about drugs that none of us can pronounce, but hopefully by the end of this talk, we'll be able to at least have an organizational framework and make these drugs less intimidating because our patients are going to be on them. And rather than just sort of be um, glazed-eyed over uh, these weird-sounding combinations of alphabets, um, we can have an approach to them, which is my goal. So these are my disclosures. They're still current up to today. So by the end of today, I'm really going to give you a 30,000 uh, bird's-eye view of the world of immunobiologics and how it, it um, affects our patients, our HIV-infected patients and basically talk about mechanism of action just in a way that you can briefly uh, put them in a category and describe to a patient what they might mean. And finally, I'll just launch into the fun part, which is uh, some real cases that come around the world from some of my colleagues um, where uh, these, their HIV patients have been on immunobiologics. So first of all, HIV-infected patients are living longer, as you know, with the life expectancy really approaching that of the general population. And as patients get older, as you know, the incidence and prevalence of autoimmune disease is going up, as well as malignancies. So it's no um, uh, surprise that they're going to be on immunobiologics. But this comes into the, in this sobering statistic, this comes in the context of the sobering statistic, which is that our life expectancy in the U.S. has actually declined for the first time in the last two years consecutively, and that's because of the opioid epidemic which you'll hear about in the last talk today, and because of suicide. So I thought I would just 
give a nod to that. So first of all, um, how many of you have had patients who have any of these conditions, rheumatoid arthritis, vasculitis, Crohn's disease, psoriasis, lymphoma, melanoma, prostate cancer, lung cancer, leukemia? Can you raise your hands? So pretty much everybody in the room. So that means that immunobiologics is relevant to all of us in this room. And the way I would divide immunobiologics, so the world of immunobiologics, is really five categories. Four of them are here. So there's the TNF-alpha inhibitors, which are kind of the oldest class, and that's the many of the ads that you see on TV have to do with the TNF-alpha inhibitors. We have the most history with them. We have some data about them. Uh, the next class is an, another older drug, rituximab, and that's an anti-CD20 drug, um, uh, commonly used to treat lymphoma, and, and some of your patients might have been on that. So I'll talk a little bit about that. And then the two new kids on the block are checkpoint blockade inhibitors and CAR T cells. So I'll end with that uh, in this talk. And the fifth category is everything else. And we'll talk about how to approach everything else as well because there are like lots of different classes, lots of different weird sounding drugs. But you need to put them in one of these boxes when your patient is on them so that you can at least try to anticipate uh, complications because you're going to be the first line and your patient's gonna call you on the advice line before anybody else, probably. So what is a biologic? It's any biologically derived product. It binds or interferes with, with a specific molecular target, whether that may be monoclonal antibodies, receptor analogs, chimeric small molecules, and the abbreviations gives you a clue as to the origin of these drugs. So if it ends in sept, uh, it refers to a fusion of the receptor of the FC part of the human IgG. If it ends in MAB, it indicates a monoclonal antibody. If it ends in XMAB, it indicates a chimeric monoclonal antibody, and a ZUMAB indicates a humanized monoclonal antibody. So the origin is related to the way it's, um, it's labeled. So a few words about immunosuppression and, and just some general comments. So day-to-day -day in my job, which, and I, I focus mainly on transplant infectious diseases and, and uh, immunocompromised infectious diseases at Parnassus, and including HIV patients who have received transplants or are going to get transplants. Every day in, in my work, I, I, when I see a patient on the wards, we, we try to stage them based on their degree of immunosuppression. With the, and it's a spectrum, so it can be quite complicated. So there's hyposplenism uh, all the way up to solid tumor treatment, autoimmune disease treatment, where biologics fall into place a lot of times. There's organ transplant, and then there's stem cell transplant. So it kind of, there's a hierarchy of immunosuppression with uh, allo-BMTs being the sort of like the most immunosuppressed. So if any of your patients have gotten allo-BMTs, we, we, we're most worried about these patients. But when you put HIV on top of that, it all of a sudden becomes a very three-dimensional um, kind of matrix-like um, situation where it's, you're, you're moving in multiple dimensions, so it's often hard to pin your patient exactly on that spectrum of immunosuppression from least immunosuppressed to most because it depends on you know, how much immune, immune reconstitution they've had, where are they in, in terms of starting HIV medicines, so it can get somewhat complicated. So the type of immune defect is related to the type of drugs we use. So in, take an older drug like rituximab, that's really uh, addressing humoral immunity or, or affecting humoral immunity. If we think about um, cell-mediated immunity, that's sort of where most of our HIV-infected patients reside, 
but they also include the TNF-alpha inhibitors and other biologics that I'll talk about. And then finally, there's innate immunity, which is generally the first-line uh, type of uh, defense that we have. That's kind of the, the pus-forming uh, uh, mechanism. So can cancer chemotherapy with neutropenia falls into that category, as well as chronic granulomatous disease. So how is this different from how we think about HIV? Well, in HIV, uh, the immune defect, as we know, is due to the death of CD4 T cells. And uh, we, we have very a good sense based on what their T cell is as to what OIs they're going to be at risk for. In non-HIV immunosuppression, including biologics, it's, it's very, very challenging because the immune defect is very heterogeneous. It depends on what their underlying immunosuppression is. If, have they gotten a transplant? Do they just have a spleen that's removed? Uh, and uh, even if they've gotten a transplant, you know, there's a hierarchy within transplant from stem cell transplant going down to kidney transplant. So it depends on the drugs that they're on. And we don't really have a CD4 count equivalent in non-HIV, and that's kind of been one of the holy grails of uh, current research is trying to find some marker, some biologic marker that we can use uh, inspired by the, the utility of something like the CD4 count. So that's, those are some general comments about immunosuppression in general. And you're going to take these general, that general framework to take you through these cases. These are all real cases. This case comes from uh, Boston. And, um, and it's a 56-year-old woman with HIV, CD4 count of 360, viral load of uh, undetectable with Crohn's disease managed with infliximab and 6-mecaptopurine. She presents to the ED complaining of shortness of breath for three weeks. So what else do you want to know? Um, you can turn to the person next to you, uh, say hi, tell them what you did last weekend, and then uh, try to come up with what else you want to do. So think like a ID doc. Um, you're consulting, and the, the person from the ED is calling you, and this is how the patients present. This, this weird drug, and uh, she's, she's coming in with shortness of breath for three weeks. So some of a subacute presentation. So I'll just give you like about 30 seconds to turn to, the, turn to your friend, make friends, uh, and, and somebody will then shout out the answer back to me. Great, so does anybody want to shout out some of the things you might want to know? Anybody? Medications, vitals, some basic stuff, vitals, what else? What about uh, other things that uh, on the next level? Progressive, yes, progressive. Cough, chest x-ray. Where's she from? So. Uh, she's from, uh, she recently went to Puerto Rico to help uh, clean up some in the garden from her, um, from after the, in the aftermath of the hurricane. And she's coming back to the East Coast. Anything else? Pulse sucks, 
So some, some good thoughts here from the audience. You guys are very participatory. When I've asked, this must be like California style. When I've been in other parts of the country, people are sort of like more quiet and reserved. Uh, <laughs> but it's very intimate here. I, I, I'm getting good vibes from all of you, so I, I expect a lot of active participation in the next questions. So uh, she, she was PPD negative. Um, and she lives in New York, but came back four weeks ago from a trip to Puerto Rico where she visited family and helped with property cleanup. Um, so what do you check next? You can just shout out some answers uh, given this. So somebody said PCB, chest x-ray. What else? Histo, somebody said histo. Why do you say histo? So histo in the Caribbean. Uh, Joe said, and, and it's one of the opportunistic infections you worry about. So great. All great stuff. So she got a chest x-ray. It was a little bit abnormal. So it was some diffuse infiltrates, uh, but not diagnostic. It was kind of, so they went on to a CT scan, and the CT scan was very, very striking. It showed these very symmetrical uh, diffuse nodules. And when we see nodules on, on service, you know, we think about two main things, which are mycobacterium and fungus. Uh, those, those are the kind of, uh, and the short differential diagnosis of nodules. And uh, they, after seeing that CT scan, send a urinary histoantigen, uh, which was positive. So a great call there. And uh, that was basically what this was. So when we look back at the TNF alpha inhibitors, so infliximab is one of the classic TNF alpha inhibitors, um, uh, inhibiting TNF alpha, which is in that cascade of inf inflammation with IL-1 and IL-6. Um, they did this post-marketing survey between 1998 and 2001. They saw 70 cases of TB with a median time to diagnosis of 12 weeks to get TB with a range of 1 to 52 weeks after starting the drug. And the interesting thing about the TB in, in this case with infliximab and other TNF-alpha inhibitors is that it wasn't classic in the terms of pulmonary TB, so people were presenting with wacky TB. That was disseminated disease. So TB in organs, lymph node disease, uh, so very, uh, very different. And that was sort of like the early post-marketing survey, but as time went on, uh, people were getting a signal. Then people started doing lots of TB screening PPDs before starting TNF-alpha inhibitors. Then as the screening went on uh, and post-marketing uh, data, uh, Kevin Winth Winthrop and others from Oregon started looking at the experience of people on TNF-alpha inhibitors, and they saw that actually TB was not that bad. It was 17 cases in a survey. Non-tuberculous mycobacterium was kind of rising, so that's, those are the non-TB uh, bugs that we've been seeing more and more, I think, in California in general, like fortuitum and some of these rapid growers. And then histoplasmosis was, was like way high, uh, 56 cases in a series. In fact, in 2008, the FDA uh, issued an alert uh, with uh, 256 cases that they have seen in their survey of histoplasmosis in patients on TNF-alpha inhibitors. And as, as Joe said, you know, histoplasmosis is more ubiquitous than we think. Uh, it's much more beyond the Ohio and Mississippi River Valleys that the Physicians in the audience might have remembered vaguely from step one for the boards, but it's kind of more ubiquitous. Even in California, we have a little bit, uh, even though we think more about coxie. And certainly in the Caribbean, it's, it's very endemic. And you can see that that nice turquoise color is where, where the concentration of histoplasmosis is, but certainly it's more widespread and, and than many of our endemic mycoses or fungi. 
So next case, um, this one comes from Hong Kong. Um, 42-year-old male with Crohn disease for three years. He started on infliximab, so another TNF-alpha inhibitor, uh, after persistent diarrhea five months prior. So he was diagnosed with Crohn's. And he was admitted with three weeks shortness of breath, very similar in presentation, subacute, not acute, like community-acquired pneumonia, which is much more, you know, three days of symptoms. This is three weeks of symptoms. Low-grade temps, dry cough, no help with amoxicillin for one week. So amoxicillin is kind of their first-line drug for community-acquired pneumonia in Hong Kong and in England, too, whereas our analogous drug would be like a ZPAC or something like that in the outpatient setting. So what is your differential diagnosis? So turn to the person next to you, and it could be a different person or the same person uh, if, you, if you had like a bonding experience. And then take a few seconds and come up with a differential diagnosis. Feel free to use the same as the last case, so you can add new things. This patient is, is uh, HIV negative so far. Oh, as we know. And it's also winter time in Hong Kong. Okay, so any any uh, audience participation here? What what's your differential diagnosis? Flu. I like flu. I heard TB. What else? What's that? PCP. I like that note. Sorry, what's fungal infection? Yes. You SARS. You guys are getting very sophisticated here. You see, with just one case, you guys are like. Jumping up to the differential diagnosis like an expert. It's amazing. I love it. So um, they basically thought of the same differential diagnosis as you. Uh, they ruled them out for TB, which, of course, uh, was getting sputums. Uh, AFB negative times three. He got a sputum culture, which was negative. Uh, he was uh, respiratory virus, PCR negative, ruled out for influenza. Got a chest X-ray, which was, again, sort of showed infiltrates and followed up by a CT scan, which showed these ground glass opacities. Did a BAL. Uh, DFA was positive for pneumocystis, which was surprising to the whole team. And then did an HIV test, and he was HIV positive. The diagnosis was PCP. He was treated with clindon primroquine. He was septroallergic and started on antiretroviral therapy. So the, the thing with him is that... Um, he was not known to be HIV positive. Uh, what I didn't write on the slide, but what was true was that his T CD4 count was actually in the 300 range. So actually not at the, the level you would expect PCB to happen at, but probably what happened is that there was a syn uh, synergy with the biologic that he was on. And it also sort of like probably uh, catalyzed or exacerbated that underlying diagnosis. and. The two came to the forefront in terms of his presentation of PCP uh, in, in, in Hong Kong in this particular case. This was another case, uh, recent case at UCSF. Uh, this guy was HIV negative at the VA hospital, a 74-year-old HIV negative man with interstitial lung disease. Uh, he had CLL, and he was put on this biologic called, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but you can come up with different uh, versions if you like, idealalacib. 
He was admitted with uh, progressive shortness of breath, on exertion, and dry cough for mon one month. So again, very subacute presentation, very sneaky. Uh, he was diagnosed with pneumocystis pneumonia, HIV negatives, and confirmed to be HIV negative uh, after. And the strange thing with this guy is that um, he got diagnosed with PCP, he was treated, and then he came back in about a month later and was diagnosed actually with um, COXI. So um, it was very, again, thinking about these uh, biologics and particular opportunistic infections actually uh, they tend to be so far on a very short list of usual suspects. And even though uh, they may not be a particular label or, or guideline around certain op opportunistic infections, which is kind of the theme with these, uh, you have to be really vigilant. So when you look at this particular biologic in the data, uh, there's actually been a study showing that uh, patients on this particular biologic in a retrospective analysis of over 2,000 patients with relapsed CLL or NHL, or non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, um, they, there was a relative risk of PCP of 12.5 and a median time to PCP of 141 days. But yet, uh, despite this, there's no P standard PCP prophylaxis guidelines for HIV uninfected patients who are taking this biologic. Another case, again, coming from Boston. This is a 69-year-old HIV-negative woman with low-grade lymphoma treated only with rituximab, uh, anti-CD20 drug. So it, uh, it inhibits B cells by uh, inhibiting uh, CD20, which is on the surface of the B cell. Month after treatment, uh, she uh, develops slowly progressive mental status changes. A CSF uh, showed a PCR positive for JC virus, an MRI consistent with PML. The diagno diagnosis was PML. So again, we're seeing PML in the HIV uninfected patients on biologics. And when we think about PML and biologics and JC virus, the, the drug that has gotten all the press is natalizumab, which is used to treat uh, multiple sclerosis. And you might have seen some of those reports in the media or in the New England Journal where many of those reports were published. But I would say that um, you know there's, there's certainly a signal with PML and rituximab, but it just hasn't gotten as much press as uh, natalizumab. And a lot of times when people write guidelines and they issue recommendations, it's, um, data is only part of it, but part of it is emotion. So because the people who got, who are natalizumab for MS got a lot of uh, you know, press for getting PML, uh, people started paying a lot of attention to it. And, and actually, you can't get natalizumab if your JC virus antibody is positive. But there are whole other drugs that uh, like natalizumab, where there's no such guideline. It's just that we haven't had much time to see any of these untoward effects as yet. And certainly there's not the same attention paid to rituximab, even though there's an association rituximab and PML. So again, you see the same theme again. There, is, there are these signals of obtuse infections with biologics. Sometimes people put it together and issue some, somewhat strongly worded guidelines, but they might be the same signal and then in that particular drug, there's no guideline. So I think it's up to all of us to really be vigilant when our patients are on biologics, patients are on biologics, to really anticipate some of these things. Uh, you know, they're going to be very rare, but in terms of our collective experience, they're probably not going to be as rare as we think. Uh, so we talked about fungus and, and mycobacterium. What about viruses? So we talked about JC virus just, just recently. Uh, hepatitis B reactivation is also uh, very commonly seen. 
um, particularly with uh, rituximab again and TNF-alpha inhibitors. And the other sort of hidden uh, virus that's often linked is uh, VZV. I think people, when they get VZV in clinic, you know, you think, oh, it's just going to be another case of shingles, but actually there's a strong signal with the biologic and VZV. And what that means is that I think, you know, with your shingrics and thinking about using, protecting your patients before they go on biologics, uh, you can probably do a great job by thinking about all of these uh, potential uh, repercussions and sequelae. So let's um, move on to the last part of the talk, which is about the new frontier. And it's been really exciting because, um, and that's really what's ushering a lot of um, people really interested in HEMONC and, and, and cancer right now because of the development of immunobiologics in that particular arena. And, but immunobiologics for cancer is not really new. So in the late 1800s, there's a surgeon in New York called William Coley and he had a patient with sarcoma, which is in panel A on the left. And he noticed that this patient, when he got like some other unrelated bacterial infection for, uh, I think it was like a cellulitis or something, he noticed that the sarcoma started melting away. And until that point, the sarcoma was kind of refractory and hard to treat. And that was really the, f and that's on panel B after he got his infection. And that was probably the first evidence that we had that, um, you know, our immune system it's not only good for infections, but can help us with fighting malignancies as well. Um, unfortunately, uh, William Cooley was trying to be entrepreneurial in the late 1800s and tried to make cocktails of other patients who've had infections, and then he injected it into other patients, but unfortunately didn't uh, cure the cancer. It might have caused like sepsis and death, but you know, back then the IRB wasn't really too big, so <laughs> we didn't really know. <laughs> <clears throat> so, immunobiologics for malignancies have been really well popularized uh, by Jimmy Carter, who was really one of the first uh, poster children of immunobiologics for malignancies. And he had metastatic uh, melanoma, which many of you know is usually 100% mortality by the time it gets up to the CNS system, where he had uh, CNS involvement. But he got this new immunobiologic called a checkpoint blockade inhibitor, and uh, basically, he, it, he's gone into remission, and it's been quite remarkable. Uh, this is another uh, immunobiologic that's been uh, in the news recently, pembrolizumab. It's a checkpoint blockade inhibitor as well, and Jimmy Carter got it for melanoma. This indication was for uh, non-small cell lung cancer, and written by, you guys know, Monica Gandhi. So the, the Gandhis are really smart. This is her sister, Lena. I remember I was in uh, New York giving a talk once, I was hanging out with Monica's brother, Raj, who's also like super smart. And I was like, what are you gonna do, Raj, after the talk? He said, uh, I'm just gonna go visit my sister. You know, she's just living in New York, and little did I know that uh, Raj is gonna visit his other smart sister, Colina. <clears throat> and he's kind of downplaying and being very modest about it. But, but it's great, I mean, I think these immunobiologics are, are really going to change the face of how we think about uh, malignancies in the future, and, and currently. So how do checkpoint blockade inhibitors work? Well, the, the seminal work for checkpoint blockade, blockade inhibitors was just done a few blocks away, actually, by Jim Allison when he was at Berkeley. And he also worked with uh, UCSF. And uh, he developed this class of drug called uh, PD-1 uh, inhibitors and CTLA-4s. 
And then he went to UT Southwestern. But while he was here, he really did most of his work and won the Nobel Prize in the last year for medicine for this work. So what it does is it, is it targets the immune system, not the cancer. And like as seen in this, these rats who received uh, the checkpoint blocking inhibitors, the, the, point, the problem when you activate the immune system, as you know in HIV with some of the work on cure and, and others, is that you can get some untoward side effects as well. In the case of checkpoint blockade inhibitors, people are worried about autoimmune disease, um, as in these is mice. Basically what happened is after they got the checkpoint blockade inhibitors, they started losing uh, pigment and, and melanin, so the skin and the hair, hair loss as well as skin deep pigmentation. Uh, so as we use more and more of these kinds of immunotherapies for malignancies, you'll see some of these side effects uh, become much more prominent, particularly as people live longer uh, with the, because of the benefits of the immu immune therapy. So to put this in perspective, this is a, a real case coming from Ward 86. Uh, it's a 52-year-old male with HIV, CD4 count of 450, undetectable viral load on a Bacavir, Dolutegravir, and Limavudine with skin squamous cell cancer. He's enrolled in the AMC 095 trial, which is looking at this particular um, checkpoint blockade inhibitor and squamous cell cancer. So he's on this nivolumab for one year and presents with fecal incontinence and diarrhea. And he was diagnosed with checkpoint inhibitor-associated colitis. So this is one of the frequent sites of immune reactivation that people have been seeing with checkpoint blockade inhibitors. And it's so uh, common now that when people get diarrhea on these drugs, people think not just about Giardia and doing stool and peas, which you still have to do, but they think about the, the side effects of these checkpoint blockade inhibitors because of immune activation. And so the treatment of this is not going to be antibiotics. Uh, it's going to be giving uh, other agents that quiet down the immune system. So they end up being some of those old class of drugs like TNF-alpha inhibitors. So you don't get any problems from infections with the checkpoint blockade inhibitors, but almost everybody is gonna get some sort of immune activation. And then the agents you give to quiet down the immune system end up being the drugs that then will give you uh, those opportunistic infections. So if you give uh, TNF-alpha inhibitor uh, to this, uh, individual, uh, then you'd have to worry about the TB, the zoster, the, uh, you know, endemic mycoses. Um, in this case, they stopped the nifibrilab. Uh, he went, might have given, and gave him some steroids, infliximab, so a TNF-alpha inhibitor, and uh, his skin cancer is still in partial remission. Wasn't able to complete the trial, but uh, luckily the, he got enough so that uh, that was addressed. Um, Finally, you know, uh, this is a picture of the first patient UCSF to get the uh, CAR T cell therapy. And uh, how many uh, in the audience are pediatricians? Great. So, you know, it wasn't peas that we first used uh, CAR T cells, and now it's been uh, used in adults. But it was really, it's really a, a new frontier of personalized medicine. And this is how it works. It's very, very science fiction-y. You basically... Uh, take uh, white cells, T cells from a patient who has malignancy, and then you genetically alter the patient's T cells in a lab so the new T cells can recognize and attack the specific malignancy the patient has. And then, uh, and this is all, so basically what happens at UCSF, for example, is that we draw the blood 
and then we ship it down to a factory in LA. It's very kind of amazing. And then in LA, they do all of this uh, tinkering genetically with the patient's own immune system. They own T cells. And then uh, they make millions of them after they genetically modify them. And then they ship it back to UCSF, and then we infuse it in the patient. And these new T cells are then uh, going to be hunting and hungry for that particular malignancy. So they zoom all around the body and then uh, basically attack and kill the malignant cells. So that's basically how it works. And again, what the promise you're going to get is around the immune reactivation. So this is going to be on your syllabus, basically things that you think about when your HIV patient is going to be put on a TNF-alpha inhibitor in terms of HIV, TB, endemic mycosis, hep B, and vaccines. Uh, these are things that you think about while a patient is on biologics um, and mainly being vigilant. I get these kinds of emails all the time when people ask whether or not a patient is eligible for biologic because I think the subspecialist is going to ask you. And the data isn't very robust at all. I think even in this room, we can probably come up with more than what's been published, which is 25 cases in HIV-infected patients. So Fellow and I am trying to sort of add to this literature by pooling all of our collective experience. So thanks a lot for your attention, and I'll, I'm here to ask any, answer any questions. I think and that, that's a great question. I think what was happening in that patient is that the patient was HIV infected all along uh, and undiagnosed, kind of like our regular patients. And then he was put on a biologic, and then he got this opportunistic infection at a CD4 count that was probably higher than he would normally had when he was just HIV infected. But the HIV was already there in the background that nobody checked. No, no, it's not common at all. It was just happening in this case. Well, we don't know. I guess I can't say whether or not it's common or not. It's just that, you know, our eyes are glazed because we haven't looked at it. If, you know, I, I'm sorry. You know, we don't have a microphone for the audience. So it makes, uh, it makes it a little more difficult, portable one. Now, we do now. We hope it's working. So we'll try to use that. But we also have cards. And so if you have questions, we'd hope that you would uh, write down your questions on the cards, and we'll try to get them all addressed as well. Um, it's a small enough room, so I think that your questions, you know, people heard. Um, but we'll ask the speakers as well if people are uncomfortable with either using the microphone or the cards, that they at least repeat the question as best they understand to make sure, A, that they understand the question, and B, that uh, we answer it. So I guess for me, one of the take-home lessons is it's nice to know that it, I don't know how old Jimmy Carter was when he got his uh, <clears throat> immunobiologic for his uh, metastatic melanoma, but it's nice to me that he could be a poster child, even in his late 80s. I know he's now into his 90s. Um, and several of the questions, and you started to address this, deal with screening. You know, the, the advertisement says, you know, if you have <clears throat> been exposed to TB, you should be screened for TB. <clears throat> and then a, a vague statement about endemic mycoses and all that. And the question I have is, and you mentioned screening that by sort of residence history, but it can be any time. I mean, you know, for a histo, they could not reside in a more endemic area for 40 years. And so do you do any other screening tests? You mentioned JC virus screen as well, but of course it's an untreatable condition to my knowledge. And so what's the, does that dictate your therapy or just maybe heighten your, your um, your awareness when the symptoms appear. 
So that's a great question, Steve. So in terms of screening, I think the only, my, my whole, my, one of the themes is that the screening is very, the guidelines are very limited because our data is limited, but there's actually a, a little bit broader spectrum of things that people are at risk for. So our guidelines around TB is very, is probably the most robust. So when people are put on TNF-alpha inhibitors, which are the biggest class of drugs that people are on, on for a variety of things, the rheumatologists are really, really savvy about asking you what's the PPD status, you know, have they had a quantiferon, and to make sure you treat them for LTBI before they put them on a biologic. In terms of the other stuff, and then people have been, you know, in terms of those patients, if you want to get them on a biologic faster, you might think about using a more abbreviated LTBI treatment. Some, you know, depending on if they're not on a PI, for example, you can use uh, rifampin for four months instead of INH for nine months. Uh, you can use uh, rifapentine-based directly observed therapy to try and uh, make them be eligible for biologic faster. In terms of the other stuff, I mean, the, the jury's out. You saw the data around the uptick in histo, but there's no real, you know, sort of like we just have to be vigilant and observant, but there's no either, neither exclusion nor treatment of, you know, people who are histoantibody positive, uh, or COXI for that matter. I mean, COXI has been somewhat invisible on the national data uh, in terms of biologics. True. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, that, no, totally. So we have several questions about, you know, sort of prophylaxis before going on immunobiologic. You mentioned, Shenrix, do you recommend, you know, uh, updated vaccines for everybody, considering it regardless of more traditional guidelines? Um, and the same true for those who might be screened hepatitis be negative or hepatitis A negative, for example. I mean, you know, do we should we just be vaccinating everyone ahead of schedule? I, I heart vaccinations as an ID person, um, so I, I would say that you know the guidelines for Shingrix are pretty limited, and so it depends on whether or not uh, insurance would pay for it. But it's an amazing vaccine. Uh, you know, it, the efficacy is above ninety-seven percent, and we've in in HIV negative patients, so we've never really seen a vaccine as good as this in general. It's been, you know, looked at in more immunocompromised patients, but people, are, the, the ACIP is still hedgy about whether or not we can use it, but it's completely safe. And, um, you know, we've been using it in transplant patients, for example. And <clears throat> I would say the guidelines uh, from the ACIP in general are for age over 50. But of course, if your patient is going to get like something bad on a biologic, it may make sense to advocate for that earlier vaccination. Several questions about we have patients who are hepatitis B positive. Do you preemptively treat them uh, as you start an immunobiologic, or do you wait for reactivation? What, what's your practice? I know I've, I can have any way into uh, on this, but uh, for hepatitis B, I, certainly it's easy with the uh, antigen positive uh, patient. But I think the the dilemma is in the core antibody positive. You know, I would say that basically if their viral load is detectable on core antibody positive, you probably pay more attention to that than if their viral load was undetectable because the core antibody positive, uh, surface antibody positive could simply mean past exposure. But the core antibody positive with detectable viral load, you probably, if they are HIV infected, you probably want to make sure that uh, the, you know, the, you want the agents that 
cover happy also being used in the particular regimen. And you suddenly, I think more, the scarier thing actually is when people get sort of complacent, they're on a biologic, they have the hep B uh, in the background, and then you switch them to something that's more convenient that doesn't you know, include Truvado or something like that. And then they get hep B reactivation. I think the switching without thinking about the background is probably more important as anticipating the hep B, because I think we're good about thinking about the virus before you put something on, but then while they're on that, and they look pretty good, and you switch around drugs, and then you suddenly switch off that Truvada because you didn't think the core positive, viral load positive was a big deal, then they can get reactivation in that setting. So you may have addressed this question in part, but um, many of our you know, patients with HIV whose viral load is undetectable, we use CD4s to help address risks. Um, and obviously, when you start an immunobiologic, you said there is no biologic test. So should we um, be maybe more generous in our uh, chemoprophylaxis, for example, for pneumocystis, for the kinds of things that we're used to have seen historically but don't see anymore in our treated patients? That's a great question. So there are two points in that particular question. The first is that, um, you know, in terms of uh, monitoring patients while they're on biologics, so I think, you know, these days we're not trying to do a lot of uh, as intensive monitoring as we did in the old days, but I would say that probably in the beginning or at least the first year or two while the patient's on biology, so even in, definitely you might want to do one you know, more regularly. Nobody has particular guidelines because, again, people have really come together on this issue, but I would certainly say at least every three to six months of CD4 con viral load to, to track that, so that's point number one. In terms of point number two, um, that, you know, we, we don't so far have any guidelines around giving PCP prophylaxis at a CD4 count that's lower. You know, we just need more data. I don't think we have enough data to say that yet, but certainly, uh, you know, if you're, you notice that your patients is on a trajectory downwards, even though they don't meet that CD4 200, you might think about it more and talk to other people. The sort of a corollary question is that, do we see a viral escape and people who are doing well on their antiretroviral regimen and started immunobiologic, is that a phenomenon we have to worry about and therefore monitor viral loads more frequently than we otherwise would? So in terms of viral escape, we haven't seen it just because we haven't looked for it. So um, basically, for anybody who's interested in doing any clinical research, we had like ground zero in this with HIV patients. So you can like publish anything and it will be like, like a contribution to the literature. So even that question, Steve, we can like write a paper this afternoon. <laughs> I would just like to affirm that this is part of the, the joy of this meeting for me, is that there are questions, so many questions that are not answered. And all of us are in a position to help contribute to um, s obtain answers. So I thank you for that, for that response. And I guess the next question is, um, in your pyramid autoimmune disease treatment scheme, starting from the top um, <coughs> over biologics, is it also true for more traditional um, immune, immunotherapies such as Imuran, Plaquenil, et cetera? So in terms of the hierarchy of Imuran and Plaquenil, it's probably lower. Uh, we haven't released, I mean, there is, they're relatively immunosuppressed, but they're not going to be as uh, immunosuppressed as the, you know, the higher up in the, the pyramid, like, um, you know, TNF-alpha and rituximab are going to be trump, trump over those two in terms of the way I think about them. 
So with that, unless there are any burning questions, will you be around for a little bit this morning or do you need to leave pretty quickly? I'll, I'll be going to leave and then I'll come back to talk to you. Okay, well anyway, I want to thank you very much for a really stimulating uh, conversation. Uh, and, and good questions very much. So we have a couple of um, audience response um, demographic questions to proceed to. So if you can open up your um, devices at this point. Um, and so the first says, did you attend Croy this year, uh, which I believe was in Seattle? Is it open? Okay, so as in previous years, the majority of you have not. And then the uh, next question is, um, uh, have you attended a post-Croy update for 2019? So if you attended one in 1988, that doesn't count. 